0: Church. Let me go back here and grab the podium real quick. Thanks band. <laughs> what am I doing? We weren't using that, Tessa. Well, good morning you. Yeah. Said before, and I'll say it again. There's nowhere I'd rather be on any given Sunday morning than Celebration Church. I love you guys. Um, there's some people I don't know that I saw come in. My name is Jeremy Hall. I'm the youth pastor here at Celebration. David's actually here today. He's just been kind enough to give me an opportunity to talk with you all again. Over the past uh, month, we've been in a long series on. Uh, we called it sun stand still we've been studying these massive audacious prayers That we find in the bible specifically we've been looking at the old testament And how this god honors the prayers of the people and how when we are willing to step out in this audacious faith God is always willing to come and meet us there so I've decided I want to bring us back towards the new testament in this next couple weeks david has actually given me more than one sunday so you can plan to avoid me next week. But um, over the past year, I've been going through the Gospels over and over. I've been trapped in these four books, the start of the New Testament, the life of Jesus, and I've just been falling more and more in love with the Savior. Like every time we go through these books, he's new and alive and speaks to us in new and exciting ways. And one of These passages that people tend to love, it's uh, Luke 15, we've called this the prodigal son. It's one that we've heard preached a lot. Pastors love this. It tends to be an easy text. It's an easy win because there's an obvious story going on here, but there's so much depth involved too. So I want to go at this really familiar text today and try to take it and look at it. In a slightly different angle, take some of the layers back and see some of the other stuff that's going on other than the obvious. The uh, first century Jewish rabbis had a a saying about the scripture. They said it was like a finely cut gem. And every time you held it up to the light or turned it, it was something different. It had a new way to reflect the light every time you came back to it. And so it's very exciting to get to re-explore this book And look at these things over and over because they're new and they're different and they speak to us in different ways because we are different people every time we read them. So in Luke 15, Jesus has been going at this for a while. He is a well-known rabbi at this point and people like him. People want to come hear him. He's healing people. He's driving out demons. He's becoming somewhat of a celebrity. So at this point in his life, When he preaches somewhere, people show up. And this is one of those teachings. People knew he was going to be here, and there's a crowd that's formed. And, of course, the people in the front row are those who need to hear him the most. The sinners have populated the front row, people who everyone knows are the sinners, too, because we're all sinners, but we have that person in our head that when you say, who's a sinner, you think that guy before you think you, right? And so the religious leaders see this, and they say, Jesus, why— Why do the best seats get given to the worst people? And so Jesus tells a series of parables explaining who it is who needs God the most. So here in Luke chapter 15, we're going to start at verse 11. And Jesus explains by telling this parable. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that entire country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to work in his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he says, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven This is a really familiar text, and people tend to love it. And it's a story. And it's a story of a man, and he has lots of stuff. This is a man of wealth and prosperity. He has property and basically a plantation, this huge farm that has been passed down through the family because there's rarely a self-made man in first century Palestine. So this man has his family's legacy that he's living on, and he has land and businesses and farms and cattle and animal and an estate and probably boats and cars and motorcycles and big screen televisions and servants and hired workers and an army of slaves. But his most prized possession are his two sons. The sons that are going to continue this legacy and continue the family name. But one day... The younger son comes to the father and says, Father, I want my share of the inheritance. He's basically coming to the father and saying, Dad, I hate you. I wish you were dead. He has come to his father and demanded what's going to be given to him at the end of his father's life. He says, Dad, I am so miserable here with you that I want to leave and start my own life, one that doesn't have you anywhere in it. Give me the money that's coming to me now so I can go and make a name for myself. This is egregious, especially under the Mosaic laws. If you're Jewish, it's a capital offense to dishonor your father. People have been put to death for vastly less than this young man just did. But this father, out of infinite love for his son, concedes this to him. And so he tallies the value of his estate. Maybe he mortgages part of the house or gets everything appraised, sells some of the cars and some of the slaves, and he cuts his son a check for the value of half of the family legacy. And son takes it, deposits it, and not long after that gathers up everything he has and leaves the country, gets as far away from the father in that life as he can. And there he lives Large. He does it upright, you know. It calls it wild living. We're talking sex, drugs, and rock and roll. By the time that we hear from him, he is probably an addict. He's probably sick. He's a drunk, but he's living large. But that money starts to run out, and it starts to run out quick. And pretty soon, the collectors are calling, and the bank account goes from black to red. And it's just about this time that a famine. Strikes the entire country no water no food anywhere the economy dissolves the housing market tanks the stock market crashes Unemployment goes through the roof and a dollar doesn't get you near as far as it used to So this young man finds himself in desperate need he's hungry He's having to struggle with the things he's done to himself over the past few years. He's got nowhere to live, and he can't find a job eventually He does hire himself out to a farmer, maybe on a farm like the one he grew up on. And the man sends him to work taking care of the pigs. That's another detail that's really significant to the first years that we tend to overlook. If you're Jewish, you don't work with pigs. You don't touch pigs. You don't eat pigs because they are considered to be unclean. And if you encounter something that is unclean, Basically, you catch it. If you come in contact with any of these various things that are unclean or ritually impure, you become unclean and impure. So this man has squandered his prosperity, ruined his family, ravaged his body, and now he's even poisoned his soul. And so we find him in this state of confusion and despair where he realizes that he's starving to death that this is not getting him anywhere and he's longing for the food that he's feeding the pigs but he doesn't even have enough money to afford the garbage and pig slop that he's feeding to them he can't even afford the dried pods that they feed to the pigs and in this moment of Being completely rock bottom, he has a flash of inspiration. He has an idea, a moment of insight. And he says to himself, How many of my father's servants, how many of his his slaves and workers have food to spare? They have a roof over their heads. They have money. They have food for themselves and their family. And here I am, the heir, starving to death. So he says, I'll go home to my father. And he prepares this speech because he he's blown it. It's over. What he had, he can never have again. He's ruined that life. He's destroyed it and burned all those bridges. His identity is gone. So he, he comes up with this speech and he says, I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God in heaven and I've sinned against you. I've ruined everything And there is no way I would expect you to ever consider me a son again. I'm not worthy of your name Please take me back on As one of your hired servants make me like a slave and i'll work for you And feed me that's that's all I ask and so he heads home And this is probably a long journey and he's got no money He's walking this and the whole way he's preparing this speech Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just take me on as a slave. And so he comes to his his home country and he's heading home. And his father sees him while he's still a long way off because he's looking for him. And when the father sees him, he's overwhelmed with compassion. His son is coming home, and he takes off, and he sprints out the front door and runs down the road, which a well-to-do Jewish man does not run. You don't do that. And so the servants cry, saw him take off and freaked out. What's going on? And so Salvin followed after him. And the man runs, and he finds his son, and he embraces him. There we go. And he hugs him and he grabs him and his son is back in his arms and he kisses him. And the young man starts a speech. Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I've ruined everything. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's enough for the father. The father stops him there. This confession lets him know that the son is has come back to his senses, that the son realizes his position to the father, and the father stops him, and he says to the servants who may just be catching up to him, because he's run away from the house, you, go get a robe for his back, a ring for his finger, and sandals for his feet. And the man takes back off, and the other servant's coming up and says, you, go prepare the fan calf, we're having a party. My son was dead, but he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. But this puts the son in a really strange position. Rings, robes, and sandals are signs of being a son. These are signs of being part of the family again, the ring with the family insignia, the robes that designate his authority.